excuse me, get down. She's been up and down and up and down and up and down. And I've got this cheese and crackers sitting here and everything is noisy and she's this cat. And usually she sleeps. Maggie, I need you not here. Go. We're leaving all that in, by the way. We're leaving all that in, by the way. <laughs> One of these days, I, I might. Mad Men, a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. What do you think you're doing? Nothing. Get over here. You could burn the house down. Welcome to They Coined It. <laughs> That's our jingle. <laughs> I think, Roberta, tell me what you think, but I think Peggy was really feeling the big toner energy of that Xerox repair guy. Uh-huh. I think um And I think I think he came in wanted... and he scolded her and you're out of your oh. mind. <laughs> oh no, no, no. I think she was I think she was turned the hell on by it. I think she saw her intensity and passion for her work uh-huh. in his intensity and passion for his work. Uh-huh. And she was, you know, you got big tobacco, big data. I'm sorry, I got to take a call. I- <laughs> big oil. And he's big toner. And I think she responds to big toner energy. Okay. That's what I feel. Okay. Yep. All right. And- Your feelings are important to me, Dan. Well, look, it got her, it got her into Freddie's office. So you can argue all you want. She ran the fuck away from that from the scene <laughs> no, of that no, I crime. I think she wanted one <laughs> one roll in the toner bottle with him. Okay. All righty. Well. All right. There we go. We're setting the stage. That, <laughs> clear on the table. Yeah. The where the where the stage where the stage is a big Xerox <laughs> uh, reproduction glass. Mountain King. Mountain King. The Mountain King. The Mountain King. The Mountain King. It was. Uh, we'll just go into it. Yeah. Mountain King writer. Written by Robin Veith and Matthew Weiner. Directed by Alan Taylor from the pilot, Alan Taylor. Original air date, October 19th, 2008. This episode takes place somewhere on or after October 11th through the week before October 22nd, 1962. I don't know what any of that means, but October, October 1962. Late, That's mid, mid, mid-October. <laughs> so I put this episode in kind of that pantheon of uh, Sopranos, um, Mad Men, next to last episode is as important in wrapping things up as the last episode. Mm. So we do a lot of that here. So we've got Joan and Peggy and Betty and tons of that. We've got Don on the West Coast and filling in, <laughs> I don't know, a decade or so of Don's backstory uh, with Anna. So it really achieves that in amazing fashion and moves things along at the same time. You've got the firm being bought out. You've got What's going to happen to Don when he comes back? It had a Nixon versus Kennedy vibe to it for me. Yeah. And uh, that that made it really fun. And you can tell that they're just winding up for the big punch. Actually, I want to discuss the title. That's a good place to start, perhaps. Yeah. I In in looking for a theme, that's the place to look. And I it's a troubling episode because it's <laughs> because of Joan. Well, just how, just how just how graphic it is, frankly. Yeah. But But I think there's a lot of, I mean, both at the time and I remember on the blog, but I think even since then. A lot of focus on the direct, what's considered to be a direct reference, which is the tune that the little boy's playing in, in Anna's house, uh, called In the Hall of the Mountain King. And he calls it out. He said, it's called In the Hall of the Mountain King. He also calls it out as scary. He handed us our theme. That's right. Um, however, 
you know, I love I love deciphering Mad Men titles because they're they're meant to be sort of part of the part of the theme and the mythology and 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 you know, I th- I think there's always something more to it than meets the eye. And this one especially because we're led to believe that it's a direct reference to like and maybe even exclusively perhaps you could say to the tune because it's so similar. But they didn't call the episode In the Hall of the Mountain King. It's called The Mountain King. So if anything, the tune refers to the title of the episode, not the other way around. What? I don't think that The Mountain King, the episode on Band of Mad Men that we're talking about, is like some direct reference to In the Hall of the Mountain King. Like, what does that song mean? That must mean what the episode's about. Or, you know, the, the backstory of that song is direct. No, I think it's just one touch point for, for this. I think it's a very graphic title. And I think that it, it leaves open a lot of interpretation. A Mountain King, that doesn't mean anything. There, there's, no, there's nothing called a Mountain King. There's, it's very evocative, right? I think of Mountain Lion. I think of King of the Jungle. So it's a very sort of animalistic. It's very King of the Jungle-y kind of thing, which could mean a lot of things also. In this case, we see a lot of dominance in the episode. The description is, it's, it's a little bit of a long description, but the, the song describes somebody's Adventure in the underground kingdom of the trolls. So it's yeah. so just I just wanted to get that in while we're trying to decipher. Yeah, that's what the song is about. I mean, we should at least if we should if we re- before we reject it, let's at least put it on the table. F- fair enough, but but I I am rejecting it as as being like the key relevant piece here because I, I'm saying that it's far more open than that. The the other thing that the title evokes for me is the Fantasia scary night on bald mountain. That's that's always what I think of. Yeah, I think I think all that stuff is kind of ripe for being. You can fill the bucket with tons of stuff. Um, so we start this episode with Betty Draper signing a check as Don, which <laughs> she's either been doing all along in her life or it's new. It's only the first we're seeing it. So let's let's call it new. I mean, my first thought was she's going back for that drawer. Me too. Right? But uh but no, I like suddenly she's behind the desk and managing the money and figuring things out. Then you've got this scene with with Sally. Um and clearly Sally's been doing this for a while. As a, as yeah. as a kid who always stole her mother's cigarettes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was quite relatable. Like she I think there's one left. You know, she definitely hadn't noticed for a while until she noticed. <laughs> By the way, I thought there was an, a mistake and I would have to check. And so I'm bringing this up and coiners, you can tell us or Dan, you can tell me. Betty finds this out and go, doesn't she go upstairs? Does she go upstairs? I don't recall that she does. I think she she sniffs around, you know, the the hallway and the closet's right there and the bathroom's right there. And that's where Sally is, I think. So I thought... So this is where I I just would need to watch it again. Somebody, you guys can just let us know. I thought that she went upstairs, but then the rest of it seemed to take place downstairs because she's saying, Bobby, go upstairs. So I I thought there were two upstairses, but I could be wrong about that. So Okay. Yeah, I don't recall it that way. People, check me on that, would you? (laughs) So you've got Betty throwing Sally in the closet, which should have upset me a lot more than it did. (laughs) It just seemed like she didn't hit her. No, it was 60s parenting. I mean, it wasn't great, but she and and she didn't leave her there. It was an interesting exchange between the two of them mm. where Sally's just like, dude, tell me the truth. And at the end of the episode, Betty seems like she's coming clean with her and telling her the truth, but she doesn't. <laughs> well, I think I think for her relationship with Sally, it was an appropriate 
truthful step for for Sally's age. Meh. <laughs> My parents didn't get divorced, but the I don't so I don't know what an appropriate conversation is with a child that at that age to to have, you know, for how truthful to be. So do you tell them everything? They they don't they haven't decided to get divorced. There's nothing to say other than he's gone because we disagree. So what do you say? It just seemed like there the version of the truth that she told Sally um was just enough to sort of get it off Betty's chest. <laughs> <laughs> but not really take care of Sally. Um, you can tell a kid a lot of the truth without having to give them all the details. Like you can say, daddy and I aren't agreeing and not say daddy's fucking other women. That's And Betty, did, to her credit, did not say that. What was weird was the, I don't know where he is. I don't know when he's coming back. Everything will be okay. That just seemed like a lot of I don't know. That just seemed like a lot of large bullshit. But it, but it accomplished it accomplished leveling with Sally that the story of Daddy being on a business trip and and coming home like normal wasn't the case. So on that level, whether it's sixties or whatever year we're in, that was a step forward. Let's talk about Don. Don's still in California, San Pedro, to be specific, coming off that bus. Would Don take that bus and not rent a car? <laughs> that just you know. I don't think rental cars were as much of a thing. I think like a rental car was like like some kind of like weird, crazy luxury at the time. That's my that was my feeling. I, I thought the same thing, and I'm like, I don't think rental cars were really a thing. This was years before OJ Simpson and the Hertz commercial. <laughs> like that's that was like the the dawn of the age of the rental car. Right? It was like the early to mid seventies, and then we were we're not there yet. But uh, more because if you take because if Don rents a car, there's no sign on the front of the car that says San Pedro to tell us he's in San Pedro. That's why. Oh, I don't know. There, Can I have a car? How answer. much? How much well, yeah. for a rental? Welcome to, welcome to glorious San Pedro. <laughs> how yeah. much for a rental to San <laughs> like, Pedro? Yeah, the, the theme song from Alice starts for playing Pedro. or something. Early like. to rise. <laughs> there you go. Early to okay. Anyway, he makes his way to this woman Anna Draper's house, and of course, all is revealed with regard to. The woman at the car dealership with Don in the 50s tie and, and sport jacket selling used cars to uh, this is now a woman he knows. I think the first striking thing when she answers the door when he's there is, well, first of all, he looks like the hobo. He's got that that look of him lifting his head to the open door, which I think is a madman language. But she's really glad to see him. So we recognize that this woman from the car dealership who was challenging him and sort of giving him shit is a long-lost friend. So that's the first clue of what the relationship is like. I'm his wife. I don't care what he asked you to do. I need to know. I have to get back to work. Stop lying. You've been caught. Don't make me do something I don't want to do. I want to go back through some of those scenes because I found... Like the 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 style, the 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 way it was directed, the way it was edited, the the sort of the cuts, the angles, the the, the vibes through all of that was um, styly <laughs> and um, kind of weird and creepy. It felt a little film noir, and and even Anna, even Anna's speech patterns in that first scene where she's confronting him. Uh, had a little of a had a little yeah it had a little tiny bit of that mid Atlantic old school sound that she doesn't have when we meet her so there's some real choppiness and and even as the flashbacks come and go I remember finding it choppy and disorienting because you've got 
flashbacks at all different phases and you're and you're like is he still here at christmas or is he mm. or or is it the first christmas or is it how many like it's it's confusing all of that said the contrast is when he shows up at her actual door in the in the present in the mad men present of 1962 it doesn't feel like that at all it feels natural and warm and suddenly we are welcomed to a Don Draper or Dick Whitman, we've never seen. We've never seen this person at ease. Mm -hmm. We've never seen this person. And he's still not fully confessional to her, right? He's right. still a little closed mouth. He's telling his version that he's ready to tell to her at that time. And it's pretty damn confessional. Like it is. Very much so for him, for what we've seen of him. But that I found that to be a real contrast in, in styles. And then suddenly that whole style sort of stops when we get there. You don't want to talk about what happened, that's fine. But you can, you know. I always felt that we met so that both of our lives could be better. That's just how it is between us. I ruined everything. My family, my wife, my kids. I'm sure that's not true. Anna Draper is played by, wonderfully, by Melinda Page Hamilton. And I, I remember we all, you know, Dan, you refer sometimes to the sort of the group think of the blog. <laughs> there were certain things we all agreed on. And one of those things was loving Anna Draper. The beatification of Anna Draper. What does that mean? Beatify, like uh, turn her into an angel. Yeah, that's and that's that's actually great because that's exactly <laughs> yeah. where I was going. What I really saw this time is she really was this older version of a manic pixie dream girl. Mm -hmm. She was heavenly and magical and wounded right. and there to heal Dawn. Yeah, like a like a like a saint or something. Right? Yeah. And, you know, you got to love it. I mean, listen, you know, give me Kate Hudson and Almost Famous any day of the week. You got to love a Manic Pixie dream girl. But mm -hmm. she really is this big old device to get us to Don Draper. Oh, yeah. That was a little, that was a little disappointing this, this round. Like, like, like it felt heavy handed? Is that what you mean? It just felt, you know, when a person is a person to be a device. Mm -hmm. You know, I and yes, everything is written and everything is to get everything in every episode is to get us to the, to another place. But, you know, we you talked a lot about how how Bobby Barrett, her purpose was for this uh -huh. and for that. Yeah. But Bobby Bar Barrett is doesn't feel like a plot device, you know. Right. Because it makes sense that the wife manager of a comedian hired for a specific client would have about, you know, 12 weeks in the life of the show and then be gone forever. Yeah. I, it's and she was such a. Vibrant, not and again, Anna Draper is vibrant, but a lot of that was I don't know. It just was like we're going to write her vibrant, and she's going to play it vibrant, and yeah. No, I know what you're saying it's, it, it's just telegraphed. You know, like this is this person's a bit of a one dimensional thing, and yeah, I think I think you can you can definitely say that, and I I would say the saving grace is spoiler alert. Anna Draper is not now suddenly a big character in this show. She's more of a presence that we feel through Don going forward. Now that we know so much of the backstory and how he got to be where he is and that Don Draper was this invention that she enabled. The the the, the invention of Don Draper was yes. was 
explicitly enabled by her. And that, that, that's important for us to know. So we have to see her. We have to know what kind of life she lives and she teaches piano and lives in San Pedro and has this porch that he built for her, paid for rather. <laughs> um, and all these, all these little details, but that's about all we need to know. So therefore it may come off as a heavy handed device, but so be it. I'm so glad you said that, use the word enable, because it was Don saying, you could be my cousin. You know, I could keep you in my life. And her saying, basically, no, keep me a secret and move forward. And I'm like, oh, they really are sisters under the skin, (laughs) you know? But they each take either side on that. He says, I want to introduce you to her. And then another time, she hadn't thought about needing a divorce. Like, they've both thought through different parts of this, but not the same parts. But there's so much to think through. The divorce. Who are you? Are you going to stay in my life? Are you? Not? She seemed to know instinctively, and I think that's just being women being more having a better tuning fork than men. That you're not introducing me to your new fiance. She's not going to buy this. <laughs> you got to keep. You are now you, you with the cross making the sign of the cross. You are now Don Draper. But go. I am. You have full license to the name Don Draper. But no, I am not part. I cannot be part of that Don Draper. By the way, I was married to someone named Don Draper. So. I'd like to leave it there, too. It's actually surprising that she's not the one who would consider that they need a divorce. I guess because she's like, I'm a widow now, (laughs) you know, but, you know, there's 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 two realities existing at the same time. She's both a widow and in need of a divorce. Right. So (laughs) it is a little confusing. And I think the part I actually now that we're talking it through and you said some of that it she's probably a little smarter about like Don is Don is getting better and better at living a lie. She's like, why compound the lie with I'm not just your cousin, but someday I'm going to slip about who my mother is or isn't or was or wasn't or my sister or this or that. Right. Yeah, She knows that's a bad idea. Yeah. Instinctively. yeah, yeah. Just, no, right. I think I think you're right about that. But he is figuring out how to how to live this lie. Right. That's what this whole thing is. And that's what I, and I know it, it did play a little confusing, but I thought they did. a I thought they did a pretty good job of cueing us in as the viewer as to when, what the time sequences were. So we saw from the bad tie and the bad haircut and the jacket when he was selling cars, that that was like the early days, Don Draper. But then in the mid, somewhere between being found out and, and present day, of course, was the Christmas with where he tells her about Betty, which ha- has to be at least a couple of years later, I'm assuming. Because they're very intimate and familiar. and This is our last Christmas together. The last Christmas, right? But they do a good job of cueing it because he, wa- he, he watches her walk out of that room through the doorway, which is where she comes in through the doorway for the flashback. So it's very obvious that we're, she's dressed differently and it's clearly a flashback immediately. So I don't, it's not meant to be like that dream sequency trickery type, where are we type stuff. He's literally watching her go walk through that doorway and saying, that's the doorway she walked through when when we had our conversation about Betty the first time. It may not have been intended to be that, but I, I remember it was very confusing and, and it oh, was not, okay. it wasn't just me. It was, it was, it, people found it Interesting. confusing. Cause again, you're going through there, it, you know, inside that house, there are, there's the early, there's the later, there's the, there's a, there's, there's three, right. There's like three different sort of timestamps and it's confusing. Um, especially that, I remember that Christmas. I'm like, Wait, is he still there at Christmas? And that, you know, it only took a moment to get the, the, that it wasn't, you know, just to back up a second, definitely when he walks in the door the first time, that boy sitting at the piano looks like Bobby. Looks like little Don. I mean, it doesn't look like a bowl cut. 
I remember I remember thinking, is this a flashback to Dick somehow? Uh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I see what you're saying. No, I meant Bobby in that not in the way that like the woman at the bar resembled Betty and he thought he was right. Betty. More like that's a little boy. I have a little boy. It's a connection to back east. I've got like a right. family that I'm sure. You know, whatever he's doing, I'm not watching it yet. I'm watching the stranger. Originally, you're kind of like, is are we now in a dream sequence? Yeah, it takes a moment. It's bound to happen in a series that has dream sequences in it. Usually, I'm the one who doesn't get it. And everyone else gets it. So this is new for me. This whole sequence, a series of sequences with Anne as a significant part of the chunk of the episode, but it fills in that backstory, I think, rather um, sufficiently for where we are in the story to how Don went from Dick Whitman literally to to to, to Don Draper. And and the role that Anna played in that, both enabling him, but also Don's commitment to her to take care of her financially and otherwise, so that, oh, so when he picks up the phone in Palm Springs, he knows what he's doing. It looked like a cliffhanger and it was a great, you know, uh, one episode to the next device to, yeah. <laughs> you know, the classic TV format. But it makes perfect sense. And it really wasn't, it wasn't some out of the blue thing he did. He might have even been thinking of, when am I going to call Anna when I'm out on the West Coast from the moment he decided to take the trip? That's what I'm thinking. I, I want to. I do want to say, and then I have a question for you. As much as I've trashed, to a degree, the existence of the Anna Draper character and the and her how she was written, let's set all that aside to say she is wonderful. So, you know, what you just addressed is what Don's role has been in taking care of her. But what we see for the first time ever is Don in the presence of... A nurturing, yeah, sexually non-threatening, just good human support in his life and good for Don. They were meant to meet, if that's a thing, and, and it is really lovely. Now, my question, yeah. setting aside seven years from now cycles, I never really understood the hot rod scene. <laughs> like, what? Why? Uh, what? Was, yeah. Yeah, it's not like it's not like now he owns a mechanic. You know what I mean? Like I don't. No, I think well, I th a couple things. First is um, I think just on a basic level, he takes these characters, in particular Don, out west in the early '60s, and I think Matthew Weiner and the writers were sort of eager to show how different the culture was in many different ways. We've talked about that for for the Jet Set discussion, uh, but it continues because he's still out there, and I think. Hot rod culture was a real thing. I don't know if you've seen the movie um, Ford versus Ferrari, mm -mm. which is a mid '60s period piece about the construction of the first team that was able to beat the Italians at 24 Hours of Le Mans, of Le Mans race. It's a big international event. I was like, I don't, I don't know those words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but 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 regardless, it was it was about a mid '60s car culture that was planted based out there because hot rods and the ability to fabricate parts and you know it was all about making cars it's almost like computers right we're gonna soup this baby up and do all kinds of crazy stuff memory and <laughs> and we're gonna make this supercomputer it was almost like that but with cars and um the culture originated out there so i think that you know and combined with what you've said which is matthew weiner wasn't sure if he was gonna keep don in la so maybe there was a a thing there where Don <laughs> – maybe there was a thing there where Don um, would latch on with these guys or have – you know, he was leaving some options open for himself by including a scene like that. I don't know. Didn't need to be there. Yeah, like I didn't know what it added. 
Yeah, and if he was really trying to leave clues to the audience that, oh, Don might stay out there, that's the kind of scene you might write. Because Fair he's enough. saying, oh, I'll come by or I'll, let me let me see. I could, I've sold cars, you know, who the hell knows. But yeah, ultimately it's inconsequential. Yeah, okay, because I was confused. So yeah, so 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 that's Anna and that's Don and that's the porch and that's a glass of iced tea. Um, and she reads tarot, the whole thing. Couple things about that tarot reading. One, my sister has been reading tarot for decades. She is a master tarot reading. And in the blog, and it's in our show notes for you, we'll get it in there. She broke down the tarot reading. She laid out the cards and she read the cards. So that's that's there if anybody's interested in that. We did a, a post-season two Matthew Weiner interview. And one of the things we learned was that he had received that exact tarot reading. Um, and those And those words, the only thing keeping you from being happy is the belief that you are alone. Like it is a golden God reading (laughs) (laughs) that Matthew Weiner himself received at some point. So yeah, isn't that cool? And then, and then check, you know, the little, the little insignia of the, I can't, the logo at the end of the way end of the episode. I don't never remember what that's called. It's like the production company. Oh, that production company. Yeah. It's the tarot card. All right. So back at home, we have a lot going on with our three, Female protagonists. Betty, we've talked about it a little bit. Peggy has her her events around uh, Popsicle, which seems like it's going to be a tiny little, you know, account plot thing, but becomes very consequential in Peggy's development. And uh, and Joan has a few scenes with her fiance. Let's put off Joan for as long as possible because <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> I wasn't ready. I was really, you know, when I no, sat down, tough. when I sat, it, I always remembered that this is the episode where Jonah is raped. But somehow when I sat down to watch this, I had forgotten briefly. Me, me too. That wasn't, that wasn't top of mind. Yeah. Really. And I, and I, for years I would remember like Mountain King, this is one of the things that happens. But, yeah. but when I sat down to watch, I didn't. And then when she comes through with, with Greg in that purple and blue dress, I'm like, oh no, 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 no. Flowers. No. Yeah. No. So we'll get back to that. Everyone breaks popsicles in half. So? You can do it all year round. The ritual. It's like communion. Um, so so the pitch with Peggy, I, I absolutely adore how all of this works because, you know, Don's AWOL. Everybody's kind of muddling through and she's able to sort of brush it off. Again, part of it she says later, like I don't judge Don. Whatever Don's doing is for Don reasons. Let's not, you know, it's not for gossip. It's not for you to you and me to bullshit about. So Don's gone, we'll move on. She does that. And, you know, the whole thing with Popsicle, it's a true creative process in miniature, in just this quick little digestible bite of a show. Um she comes up with the concept. She comes. She comes up with really what the the value proposition is for this brand for them, which is truly her job. And how she pulled it from so the, the, it was it was the creative team sitting around talking and really kind of zoning in and meditating a bit on on the brand and and this whole thing versus she says this and I you know we we always say we're just two Jews figuring all this stuff out but like <laughs> this whole thing of Catholic versus Christian. Is a big part of it, you know, where you know this ritual and and you know, and someone says it's like communion, and she says, no, no, it's it's not. I don't know if she says it's not Catholic, but she says it's. Or someone says like Catholic, like Catholic Church. She says, no, it's Christian. Yeah, it was interesting because that was in reference to communion, and I was like, again, 
I'm worse at this than you are. I didn't date a Catholic girl in college. <laughs> but we know we know she doesn't take communion. But I did think that communion is a specifically Catholic thing. It is. Maybe it was just the way it was worded. It seemed like she was saying she said communion and then, but not the Catholic kind. Communion is Catholic, number one. And number two, she, she was absolutely explicitly drawing the distinction between Catholic and Christian. And I'm interested in that. And she even says, you know, the Catholic Church knows how to sell stuff. And she's holding the flyer, by the way, of right. the A Night to Remember dance. That's she, right. She, <laughs> more, more great callbacks on Mad Men. But, but, but she, she takes this thing that she and Sal are vibing on, which she obviously, they both, he has an Italian American. She has, you know, coming from a, from a, an Irish Catholic family having this. She Irish? I think it's Irish Catholic in terms of how they, you know, their neighborhood and everything. Yeah. I thought they were. I think they're Scandinavian by name, yeah. but that's her dad's name. Her mom, I'm sure, is Irish. Right. But then, but then Anita is such an Italian name too. I think, it they, is. I think, I think it's a little swirl. Fair enough. But two Catholics on the creative team talking about the church. And there's this, you know, the ritual and she loved us both and it was very communal. And, and so they're just bringing all these things into it beautifully. And she makes that the basis of her, of the creative leap to, to the tagline of whatever it was, share it, care it, love it, suck it. I don't know what, whatever it was. But, <laughs> Said uh, it, forget it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she made a beautiful campaign out of it, what would become, I'm sure, a campaign. And, you know, the mother in that artwork, unspoken here. I got like, that. Like, there's a halo. I got that it. Is, That's the Mother Mary. I got that it. That is Christ. <laughs> That's some kind of, yeah, Mother Mary or, oh, that you know, was, a no, fresco from somewhere. Absolutely, that was absolutely the Virgin Mother with baby. Even with the, the pose, two, the way she's holding her head. painting and, of the yeah. two. So, yeah. So, it's very um, indicative. And, and the client says, I've seen that before. I've seen that picture before. Right? So, it's, it's that kind of thing. Like, all great ads that we see, it's, what, what does Don say? Derivative with a twist? Yes. <laughs> this is derivative with a twist. That was great. It's truly an inspired moment and it wins the account and it gets them the the campaign and the client loves it and she does it single-handedly, Peggy, just takes the reins. Yes, that, I, that's what I wanted to address. It's, you know, before she has the scene with Roger, she is fully confident and there's no glee. There's no like, Don's not here. I can do this now. No, she just, no. she just knows the work. It's competence. She is so committed to the work and she knows good from bad. And she knew this was a because she knew this was a real idea. And she ran that creative session, by the way, right? Sal wasn't you didn't see like Sal taking it over or the account team trying to horn in. She was in control. She ran it. She took it from here to there. And it and it got Sal to do great work, right? That was Sal's artwork. So that whole process was completely, you know, sort of seamlessly, effortlessly, not effortlessly, but looked effortless. On Peggy's part, man, what a leap and what a what a show of of Peggy's growth that we're we're able to point point all those things together from Don's advice to getting it wrong a couple times and other and then and then really knocking it out of the park. So that whole thing is is just beautifully illustrated within all of this other stuff of this, this episode. And and the kicker, of course, isn't just that they get the account. <laughs> she she stakes out Roger's office. There's that cute little back and forth where he's got to get going and she interrupts him and, and says, look, I, I, I got this account. I shouldn't be in there with the fucking copier and I should have Freddie's office. Roger and she have a number of cute little scenes all the time as well. And that'll continue. Um, but the, but the idea is that he, while patronizing 
He's also very honest. He's like, look, none of these guys had the balls to ask. Sure, go, it's yours. And it was a beautiful response of his, and we as the audience are cheering for her. And it just, you know, the dominoes keep falling for her in, in this episode, uh, which is was really welcoming to see. I thought the reactions were interesting. All the guys, like, why do you get it? This da, da, da. they all they all treated her like she's like, why are you entitled? Like you're so entitled. And the truth is. She's been the least entitled of any of them, which is what forced the issue. Because if she had been in, she had been sharing a normal office with a person, with an orangutan, if you will, as opposed to with a Xerox machine, it wouldn't have forced the issue. So the fact that she was shoved, shoved in a closet (laughs) with a Xerox machine is in fact what led to this, to her creating this opportunity. That and what Pete Campbell said after Freddie got fired in six month leave. Yeah, don't don't apologize for doing your job and getting promoted. She would not make that mistake again. That that was that was she wasn't going to hesitate. She wasn't going to miss the opportunity out of oh boy, Don's away or uh, you know, I'm stuck in the copy machine or whatever it is. Yeah, she's going to she's going to go and ask. And if you want a definition of entitled, it's the look on those guys' faces who thought they didn't have to ask for it. That's right. That's right. Roger knows I'm in there with an orangutan. He should he should be, you know, I should get offered that. I was waiting for that to happen. I've been doing my job. I run my department. Well, douchebag, you didn't ask. Peggy did. That's right. Suck it. I would like to talk about Pete at this point in the trajectory, mm. if I may. <laughs> Quietly interesting episode for Pete. Well, quiet is one way to put it. He, he there was some yelling. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. There was a bunch of yelling before it it got calm. So there's sort of like the two halves of it. There's the he finds out through Hildy, <laughs> Hildy basically blessing him <laughs> yeah. that uh, he's got an appointment with the adoption agency. He hits the roof about that. He gets home. He picks the fight with Judy. He yells. He throws a chicken. Hell's bells. Hell's yeah. bells. All of that. That was unpleasant. That was unpleasant, and that was heat as we expect him in some ways. I did love Trudy. You know, you're not going to talk. I can't remember the line, but you don't talk. You don't talk to me that way. Exactly. But after that, maybe the first time I I found some respect for Pete. So when Tom Vogel calls Pete to coerce him, I'm considering pulling Clearasil if you don't give my daughter what she wants. He wasn't having it. Well, listen, the whole that whole relationship has been based on what Tom's been trying to manipulate as a as a financial. And on the, it's presented in this way of like, you're our family, you're like our son, we want you to be happy, we want her to be happy. But it doesn't take into account Tom's real MO, which is the intrusion and the meddling nature of, uh, of him and, 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 well, him in particular in Pete and Trudy's marriage, number one. So it hides all that. And it doesn't mean that, listen, when you guys are fighting, I'm going to take sides. That's the intrusion as well. You had mentioned dominance as a theme in this episode. Totally. And to watch Pete give up that account, I mean, really took a stand. And Pete would have done anything for an account last year. He couldn't help but respect it. And what he said about, I loved Trudy and your meddling is what made this mess. And, you know, and then that whole, it's not what I meant. And yes, I still love her and whatever. But, Mm -hmm. you know, he really, that was, that was really a clarifying moment for him. And and for us, and you had to respect that he gave up that account. And it was growth for Pete that, that in a way, kind of parallels the growth of Peggy. It, him standing up for himself with Tom was a huge moment. Huge. And taking the hit, he's going to take the hit on Clarissa. And it's, yeah. he says, it's not worth it. 
And then there was something I noticed, you know, Pete, Pete goes to see Peggy in her new digs and because he needs someone to talk to. Now we've watched when his father died, Pete looked at Peggy and wanted to go to her and didn't. Mm. At Harry Crane's baby shower, he was all kind of up on her and that was kind of gross. This wasn't that. This wasn't sleazy. This was, you know, you've watched him go from why is she why is she trying to write to Peggy, listen to Peggy. Yeah, and and in, and, and that scene in 6 month leave where he had to school her on I'm not going to apologize for this, Peggy, you shouldn't apologize for that. Like he was he was wiser than she was in that moment about that that topic and now she clearly learned the lesson the proof is her sitting behind freddie's desk yeah. in what's now her office and him going how'd you freaking make this you know and he's marveling at her when really what she did was take his advice and he's really coming to her for the first time as an equal equal yeah thematically clearasil the brand that bought them both together symbolizes the 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 difficulties of growing up and you just watch this before your eyes. That's cute, right? Exactly. The teenage brand uh, has to get uh, has to get cut off. Very good. Let's take a break, and we'll come back and talk about all kinds of other things. Okay, Roberta. So let's talk about Betty Hofstad Draper. Dan, I have some thoughts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So now we watch the, the the other side of this Sarah Beth Carlson Arthur setup thing, right? This that's we're watching the spillage of that, and you know we we talked about you and I discussed why Betty would do this, but I have some new thoughts. But I want to know if you have new thoughts before I go on to my new thoughts. No, I I I, I don't have anything new. I just I think that this is Betty being. You know the the high school mean girl. This is this is Betty in high school. This isn't the first time she's manipulated two people into doing something they might later regret, whatever that might be. But that's not new. Maybe I mean it's definitely about dominance again. She knew what she was doing. This is oh, this no, no, was, no. she was she wasn't rolling the dice for a second on no, this. No 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 hundred percent she knew what she was doing. I I we've talked a lot about Betty's anger, her rage. On the one hand, she is angry at cheaters, at the existence of cheaters. Bobby and the tracing paper, yeah. Tracing paper? Remember he used tracing paper to do George Washington, she he got the credit. Cheaters. So funny. I was like, Bobby Barrett? What do you mean? Bobby Barrett. And you said Bobby, and <laughs> right. I was like, what do you mean? Bobby Draper. Bobby Draper number four. Uh, I didn't mean that kind of cheaters, but but that's also true. No, that's all part of it. Cheaters and liars. But I, yeah. I so I meant- that's great. That's really funny. I meant I meant cheaters as in husbands who cheat, husband, husband. children who right. cheat on, on assignments, whatever. Infidelity is what I meant. But right. you're you're right. That's another. You are correct. I I forgot. I kind of forgot about that throughout the season. That that anger she's had at at her son. So I think there's a there's a, a blanket anger at the existence of cheaters. There's something really wildly psychologically twisted about setting up that cheat to be morally superior. And part of her anger is she, this is a woman who has had other desires. We've talked about, there's been a sexual awakening where she's always had these feelings. She's aimed it all at Dawn. But in the last, since we know her in the last couple years, she's noticed or she's noticed more out loud, right? She spoke it to Francine that you know, she thinks she thinks about the repairman. She thinks about, I mean, the uh, yeah. the washing machine. She she considers having affairs, and she's been good 
And she's been good. And now she's going to punish the world for her virtue. So Sarah Beth says, you know, you wanted him too. We've talked about it. And I'm still like, really? (laughs) I I still see no evidence other than Sarah Beth now saying that I guess they talked about it. But there was nothing to indicate between Arthur and Betty that she was into him. I thought she just saw him as a kind of an oafish man-child. I think your evidence-based searching in this case is a flawed system. Um, (laughs) Because I also didn't see an attraction between them, but it did seem, she did seem to behave as though. So I I almost think it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm I'm landing there too. Yeah, I almost think it doesn't matter. She either played along with Sarah Beth. Mostly to mask the fact that I might've been wrong. Sure. So I'm saying it doesn't no, matter. No, good good for you. <laughs> well done, Dan. No, I think I think she I do I think she was somewhere in between actually being interested in him and enjoying the idea of letting him think that she was interested in him and let and let it didn't and it doesn't matter which it was. It also makes the setup of Sarah Beth richer if she was into him too. Yeah. Like we both wanted him, but I made you do the bad thing. And resisted doing the bad thing myself. And I'm going to revel and she, in it. Right. She did resist it. There was a moment, yeah. right? There was the scene in the in the barn. And I'm going to rub it in your face how I didn't do it. That That's kind of the point is I did want to do it. We both wanted the same thing that was wrong, but one of us is wrong today and it's not me, it's you. What, what was fascinating, Sarah Beth is a, an emotional wreck. She has slept with this kid and ruined her life. She thinks her husband suspects, which which is either true or she's walking around paranoid. Yeah, she's a wreck about it, right? <laughs> and through being a wreck, she has the clarity to say, oh, you're an awful woman. <laughs> like she put that together fast. Oh, yeah. And, and, and came to the correct conclusion <laughs> that what Betty did was horrific. And she's living with the telltale heart, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, pounding in, gong the, gong. in the corner or whatever. Gong gong. <laughs> right. Gong gong. <laughs> no, that's but that's but that's Betty's act of dominance over that situation and those two people pulling the strings and being very, you know, puppet master like. We are meeting to discuss the merger with Putnam, Powell, and Lowe, the details of which we've all had time to examine, including Mr. Whitehouse. Where's Mr. Draper? Do you want me to go get a picture of him so you can stare at it? You know, the other part of dominance that we need to address is the purchase of Sterling Cooper. They're being purchased, bought out by a bigger jungle cat uh, in PPL. And that means a certain subservience to their wishes. You've got Roger, who's got his own reasons the whole thing was put in motion because of Rogers sort of taking the eye off the ball, so to speak. And then Bert, who deep in his heart wants to sell, but is hesitant because of, well, I didn't want to have to sell this way. I didn't want to have to this be the reason Mm. that we end up doing this. That's the whole conversation with his sister, Alice Cooper, (laughs) (laughs) worth, worth a, worth a spinoff of her own. Lesbian. That, um, (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. She's wild. She's crazy. She's Bert Cooper's sister. <laughs> that that's another kind of king of the jungle, survival of the fittest thing. But back to Bert, he, his whole thing is, yeah, but I didn't want to have to do it this way. And she, it's like, them's the rules of the jungle, baby. You know, the, <laughs> the lion comes calling, you're going to be eaten. To tie the two storylines together, Betty is trying to assert dominance over her life that has felt out of control for a long time. And she's doing it in this, you know, side ass way, well, but she's you know. doing it. Now, the elephant in the room, uh, Sterling Cooper, 
is, is the missing Don Draper and how he's going to feel. Now, again, this is a man who just <laughs> took off, gave up all control. And we don't know if he's coming back or not, but you can figure that he assumes that what he's going to come back to is similar. <laughs> like, yeah, he's no reason to think, you know, right? he, he, the kind of changes he might expect to come back to is Peggy has a haircut. <laughs> he's he's not going to expect that it's a whole different company. So he's really given up much more control than he, than he realizes. Than he realizes. Yeah. But look, as of the moment in the episode, he is, you know, talking with hot rodders about, <laughs> about you know, running away and joining the circus with them in some way. So, But that, wait, so, yeah. that's, wait, is that now? Wait, maybe that's why I'm confused. That's 1962, the hot rod conversation? That's how I took it, that that was not a flashback. See how – you're right. Of course you're right. No, I mean, everything we talked about, you're right. But I just realized that I still yeah. – I'm still confused. I got to tell you, this episode yeah. is confusing. Yeah, there's nothing to indicate that's – there's nothing to indicate that's a flashback at all. No, you're right. Ex right, except you're right. I find this episode confusing, not going to lie. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not good enough at cars yeah. to have to have flagged it. Like, I have to think about it, and I'm still – I mean, I do a podcast about the show, and I still yeah. didn't quite get that. I don't know if you've heard. I do a, a podcast about Madden. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm supposed to be good at the 60s. No, fuck that. <sighs> uh, anyway. Yeah, as of now, Don's not knowing if he's returning at all, you know, supposedly. So, and as Roger says, you know, he's going to make half a million dollars on his 12.5%. I think that was. So I think that puts the firm at like $4 million. Okay. That's how I read it. I, I, I haven't tracked the fiscal. I don't. But it's, but it's more about that, that King of the Jungle, Survival of the Fittest theme, theme here, back to Mountain King, that if you're not King of the Jungle, you don't make the rules all the time. You know that that's expressed through Bert. That's expressed through through Alice to some degree, and um, and it's another take on 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 that title because the firm is now in another owner's hands. More of that Bert and Roger backstory of we need that prequel. The more we talk about it, we <laughs> need that prequel. Uh, we'll throw Alice in there. Best, you know, what is the best investment she ever made, or whatever? Miss Blankenship and Alice and whoever was running around the firm back in the twenties. Alice, Alice used to babysit Roger. <laughs> Right, all these little things, right? I mean, it's is so and great. Was it Alice that introduced him to his wife? Yes, Mona, Mona, and Roger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Greg and Joan. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, it, the other the other side of dominance is assertion, and you know, we got a glimmer of Joan and Greg at home. When Joan was reading the scripts and he wants her craving bonbons because she's knocked up. We got we got a sense that, that Greg is somewhere ranging from of his time to deeply misogynistic in that in that in that scene. And we definitely got a sense that he is less interested in who Joan is than in sort of what he sees Joan as. We see them earlier in the episode where they're being intimate and he's tired, but they still wanna they still wanna get busy. And she gets on top. Asserting herself. I don't think that reads one way or another these days, but he was looking at it. At, you can tell the um, – he refers to it as, you know, where'd you learn that? Which is sort of like, look, you know, she's not a spring chicken. She's got a history. He's got a history. You know, she's, she sort of alludes to it like, like why, are we, why are we having this discussion? Like we, we, we're, not, we're not here to like 
uh, judge each other on, on things like that. We're just here in bed. It seems like it's a discussion they've had before in in, exactly. in, a, in in a in a breezier context because what she said was a kind of a very romantic glossing over called I don't remember exactly the line but like we don't have a past right there there was no one there was no one before that's been her kind of company line about soothing him that he's the one and there's no there's been nobody before you even though there's there may or may not and we and we don't get into that because why do that yeah. this is but this is him now taking a discussion they've clearly had before there was a there was a we've been over this tone to her to her response right so so you get that there's been some tension over i don't even think it's exclusively about her past although i think for him it is about her past my assumption is that in the past discussions she tries to make it an equal thing he does not see it as equal. And that starts to come very clear here. Right. But I don't think he sees it as equal. This is really splitting hairs. I don't think he sees it as equal, literally equal. I think he sees it as a double standard. In other words, I can have a past and you shouldn't worry about it. But your past, I'm going to be concerned with. I don't think he sees it as a double standard. He has a double standard. He has a double <laughs> yeah, standard. Exactly. Completely. And it's it's and she keeps trying to quell that with we don't talk about our past exactly. because right. we are living for one another. And he's never bought it. And it's now starting to bubble and there's some anger there. So by time later in the episode, they're in the office and they run into Roger and she introduces her boyfriend to her ex-lover at that point, Roger. Um you know, Roger makes the comment about not liking French food, which is a very insider. You know, it's an intimate detail about someone, uh, uh, something you would only know someone you know really well. And Roger asserting a little dominance in that moment uh, too, because <laughs> Roger is capable of not of being discreet when he needs to. That was a dick move, Roger. And equally capable of being thoughtless. I don't think he was trying to throw a monkey wrench into anything with Greg. And no, I do not. He's got Jane and that's his No, thing. just to assert a little dominance. Yeah. I think he liked to I think he threw a little spike in the wine. I just don't think he I mean, he certainly didn't think she'd pay a price for it like she did. Certainly not. Uh but regardless, it, it, the 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 punch is spiked. And but that's the the domino that fell earlier in the episode with that with that moment in bed that was ruined by him. Now becomes cuz he's the ruiner. Right. Now becomes an over-the-top, completely, I mean, to say nothing of criminal. Now he sees it as he's been weakened in, in Roger's eyes. He noticed it because he mentioned it to her. And he's going to now take it out on Joan. Whether he sees it that way or not, that's that's the the way the dominoes are falling. I don't really, yeah, I don't really care how he sees it. Mm -hmm. um, he definitely, this is definitely, he's been, he's a weakened little baby who needs to assert his dominance. Well, it's hardwired insecurity. I mean, we, we, we now know this, this is who he is. Every time something comes up about Joan, he sees it as a reflection on him not being man enough or whatever. Or whatever. It it's ridiculous. Uh, it's disgusting. And I don't I feel like none of these words are really uh, meeting, the, meeting the moment. Let's just get to it. He pushes her to give him a drink inside the office. She didn't really want to do that, but she did give in to that fairly easily. But again, we're avoiding a scene. Right. He then, and just for anyone who has any lack of clarity about this, because I remember hearing back when this originally aired from one or two people, it was like a rape. 
And the position of the blog at the time and the position of this podcast is there's no like here. This was a hundred percent a rape. There was nothing sexy about how it was filmed. There was there were very clear protests from Joan. There was physical pushing back. You know, I've never not been clear what this scene was. Maybe I'm getting more sensitive as I'm older. I was horrified watching. Like I had a, I kind of jumped at one point. It hit 10 times harder now. Yeah, it really did. Absolutely. Maybe maybe it's been the four years of, um, of, 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 I don't know, but it was just awful. The way the, the scene plays out, where she's sort of like, okay, one drink. I get it. It's Madison Avenue. This is how you guys do it. Blah blah blah. He wants to have a drink. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll we'll put on a show here. If this is what this, if this is what Greg wants. And before you know, before she even pours a drink, he's uh, physically on her. Again, the dialogue. It's just it escalates on her part. Of what are you doing? This isn't funny. This isn't this isn't fun. This isn't fun, right? Even more to the point, and and just her language gets more and more objectionable to to what he's doing, so that there is no ambiguity. Number one, but also, look, we love Joan. That that's our character, right? That's we we love her. The audience loves Joan. There's no. This is a character that we um that we feel protective over, right? In, in, and and when we see this happening, which. Even within this episode, it still feels somewhat out of the blue, right? There was nothing to indicate such a violent act would happen. When it happens so suddenly, we feel as she does just – it's not like we saw it coming and she didn't, which sometimes happens in shows. Right. There was none of that. It was all very – it went from zero to 60 in in in, in a matter of moments. And um, we can look back and see dominoes, but that, that's not how it felt. And so the impact of it was, I think, just as strong on the audience – I mean, these are characters, of course, but um, we felt it. We we felt that we were feeling um, as violated as a, as a, as 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 viewers because of how unpleasant it was to watch Joan go through this. You know, this season there's been we we've uh, up until recently we have only ever seen Joan one way, as as strong as in control as she's got it all together. But one thing that I've pointed out is. There's this um, image of herself that she wants to maintain that isn't necessarily true to who she is. Case in point, she's with this guy who's perfect on paper, um, as 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 she describes him later to Peggy. And we can get back to that. You know, he's a doctor. He he helps the kids in Harlem. All of that. But we've also watched some takedowns of. Of Joan this season, we've we saw what happened with with the with Harry and the script writing the script reviewing and and we saw what Jane did to her. Jane and Jane. Jane Jane particularly. Yeah. I mean, you remember how upset I was on that? Like yeah. <laughs> Jane manipulating, you know, really undercutting and undermining her power, like literally, like Joan fired her, and now Jane is marrying. <laughs> the guy who saved her job, which was Jones to roost. So this has been a, a slow cutting down of Joan that uh, I don't I don't love. And that cut, I don't think it was an immediate cut. I think there was a scene in between, but then we get back and we see Greg leaning against her desk and, you know, looking at his watch and waiting for, you know, and you know that she's getting herself together. 
and you wonder, and you know, this was me. I don't know if it was everybody, but you, you want her to come out and kick him in the nuts and walk out the door. And the ex- and, and something, not just, not just the opposite happens, 10 times worse than the opposite happens in, in, as an audience member, as, as a viewer watching this, which was number one, she comes out and the spark that is absolutely 100% hardwired into Joan Holloway as a character, the spark is gone. Her face is numb. Her eyes are blank. She has, she's traumatized clearly. And that we immediately, recognize that is not our Joan. That is a different Joan walking out of Don's office after she's gotten herself together after being raped by her fiance. I mean, her hair, so, her hair was perfect. That was so. Right. You know, it took, probably took 10 minutes, 20 minutes to just, just to, just to, and, and, but not all of it hair, right? She probably had to steal herself for the rest of the evening. And she's, she comes out, not a smile. Leaves the flowers on the desk, which of course is symbolic. She then goes out with them, and you know they're going to go to the restaurant, whatever else. And so, worse, worse than just not acknowledging it, we feel like okay, so now she's somehow complicit in this horrific, traumatic event. Where does that leave us? It's very unsettling. I would not use the word complicit. I know what I know what you're saying. I know what you're pointing she's, she's to. Com- she's she's complicit in normalizing it. One of the discussions we had for a good long time following this event, we, the blog, people talking about Mad Men in general was, does Joan understand what happened to her? Um, and then I remember I, I pictured it as like, it's 1984 and she and her granddaughter, or I really had this whole picture of, of Joan and her granddaughter sitting, uh, you know, at a kitchen table over a cup of coffee discussing date rape and her going, oh, that's what happened to me. You know, we, mm. we don't know that we don't, we don't see. My take on that is, I think deep down, deep, deep, deep down in the places that you don't acknowledge every day. Yes, she knows what th- that's what that look on her face was. Right? Was was clearly I'm not the same person and I don't even know what that is. Um but no, on the surface absolutely not she does. Cuz I think if you know what happened to you you're not you're not having the rest of the evening. I mean, again, the word complicit was probably misused, but I mean in 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 you're you're normalizing everything because you're not ready to kick the guy in the nuts and walk out the door, which is uh, you know, might might I like to think would be more common today than then, but no, I, she, she's not able, if you asked if she was raped, if she was asked if she was raped, she would say no. Joan survived it. We survived it. None of us are the better for it. You know, it's worth mentioning also when Peggy is moving in, literally moving into Freddie's office and she's having that little exchange with, with, uh, Joan. You know, we know what Joan just went through the night before, because this is like the next day in the office. Peggy's moving in, <laughs> and she's asking Joan about when's the wedding, and they're having this back and forth. And that's when Joan like reads Peggy Gregg's resume, right? Great on paper. And again, we see that light in Joan, just not there, which is brilliant acting, but also I'm sure part of the part of the writing and directing and all of it and. And Joan is now like convincing herself that Greg is not a monster. (laughs) 
in in how she's talking to Peggy. We see it. We can absolutely yeah. see that she is convincing herself of all these great things. Now, oh, Christmas, we're getting married at Christmas. And it's a night. And for Peggy, it's kind of a she doesn't notice anything that's going on because why would she? And she's genuinely happy for Joan. And it's between those two characters who have their own, you know, crazy chemistry and, and history. It's a nice scene sort of on the face of it. But what we really are also seeing is this aggressiveness that both characters have displayed or assertiveness, if you want, in this episode. Joan was, you could say aggressive in bed, but that makes it sound like it's assertive. a bad thing. She was, she was assertive in bed. And that was, that went badly. Peggy was aggressive. It gets her the new office Assertive. and this new status and all of it. Uh, oh, and, and Roger calls it aggressive, right? Oh, you ladies now, you're very aggressive. Or yes. <laughs> so I it might be a misnomer altogether to say aggressive. <laughs> but but yeah, assertiveness for sure, that you've got this trajectories now that are crossing in the absolute different directions. And it's it just it struck me by the end of this episode where we'd been and where we'd come from. That, that this is what we're seeing. That scene was clearly a complete switch in the power differentials between these two yeah. women. Go back <laughs> to day one, go back to day 10, go back to whatever. Joan has always been, as you always say, the queen bee. And Peggy was meek little Peggy. And now we find out Peggy's going to get her own secretary. So you've got Joan sitting at that desk, really looking so small. Yeah. Pe yep. And Peggy yep. looming large. You know, one of the beautiful shots in the episode is um, Peggy in that office late at night. She had found a cigarette doing the stretching, mm. the silhouette of her doing yeah. the stretching. I mean, she's just really coming into her oh space. Like she's just feeling good about what she's up to. Exactly. She works hard. She works she's her there ass late. Off. And, and I remember from the uh, DVD extra, and this is a great point from the DVD extra, uh, where I think Matthew Weiner was doing the commentary. And he said, you know, that shot of Peggy in the office grabbing the cigarette from the desk, someone else's desk and stretching. He's like, that costs a lot of time and a lot of money mm -hmm. to make that shot. We got to set it up. We got to get the lighting just right. We got to make it. So everything ha for, for no dialogue, no plot, nothing's moving forward. But it, to me, it's sort of like that. It's another one of those brush strokes. Absolutely. Just like we see Don correcting the two guys in the elevator when they're rude in front of the lady. It has nothing to do with the episode, but it's a brushstroke about the culture and about coarseness and everything else. Here's another brushstroke. Peggy works hard. She doesn't stop. She It's thankless. And she's, she's feeling herself while that's and, happening. Right. So that when these great things happen for her, we it's 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 even more gratifying for the for the viewer to really understand what this means for a character like Peggy. So, yeah, all of that comes comes into play and I think it part of what's really poignant about that exchange with Joan at the end. Yeah, it was great. So we end with Don in California and he says he smells the ocean and he's running on the water, blah, 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 that uh, the last shots are of him walking in the ocean, no shirt. He looks terrible. Khakis on, <laughs> no shoes. It looks great. You know, he starts walking in and I, I remember saying to him, even the first time I watched it and then each time after, I kind of go, oh, this is going to be another, you know, over the top baptism scene. Right. We just, there's so many, right? Literature and film and, but it's just like every, yeah. every other movie has some kind of a baptism reference and we're different afterward and we come out different, blah, blah, blah. And this in, in sort of on paper is no different, but I just love how they did it. I think it was really nicely done. 
it was a little bit more raw than you usually see them because the waves are kind of crashing them hard. It's not like a soft sort of easy entry into the water. He's kind of being not battered, but it's a little choppy. And that that music that plays, I, I love I love the production and what they do with Don as a character over the many again big circles over little circles. But they constantly tie Don's character back to that kind of heartland Americana religious upbringing. And so the music starts playing. Roberta's going to come up with the name of it in a moment. The music comes in and you're immediately, this isn't just Don anew, (laughs) but it's Don as a character, both connecting to his past and trying. We don't know that he goes back to New York, but he's trying to refresh who Don Draper is. And frankly, we've just witnessed a rape in this this episode Hmm. and we need a little refreshing too. So it comes at just this very poignant and an appropriate moment for the viewer to sort of feel like, okay, we've had this, again, this next to last episode that that takes us through so much, and we're ready for what's next somehow. The song is Cup of Loneliness by George Jones. It was so perfect. Oh, George. I don't know why I didn't recognize that voice. George Jones. George Jones is a legend of country music, and he's got that kind of silky honey voice that's just God only knows how many drunk driving accidents this guy's got into over his, you know, 90 years of living. But what was, was, yeah, it was like the prototypical hard living, <laughs> hard drinking, <laughs> uh, uh, country, uh, you know, sixties and seventies married to Tammy Wynette. She thinks I still care is one of his best songs. But yeah, this kind of overtly religious middle America, hard scrabble kind of upbringing that, that, that Don has, and that really look so much of the country originated there, right? So, so it's really a, a poignant. I feel when we hear that music come on because it's not obvious, and yet it mm. makes perfect sense. That's the, that's the music that accompanies him trying to refresh himself because he's still the poor child. He really is. All right, so <laughs> that was the Mountain King, and <laughs> let's do some quotes when we come back. Dan, Dan, welcome to They Coined It. <laughs> What's your quote? So we talked about what a great scene that was in Peggy's office, a new office with Pete coming in and he's, he kind of marvels and says, what, how'd you swing this? And she's like, she says, I'm sleeping with Don. It's really working out. <laughs> and I'm, me- I'm laughing. I'm laughing inside because you fucking stole my quote. Literally, <laughs> I go to paste it into the document and there it is. And I was like, God. Too bad, yeah, nice. so sad. <laughs> that um, Elizabeth Moss, first of all, nails this delivery because it's so understated and dry. And confident. <laughs> you know, that takes so all the confidence in the world to deliver that to Pete Campbell. She just got her balls busted by the guys out for taking the to begin with. So she's just like, look, whether I'm doing it or not, I'm going to get blamed for it. So let me let me have fun with it. But it's also like, all right, this is a whole new Peggy Olsen. Mm-hmm. Whether it was Bobby Barrett with the lesson, it was Joan with the lesson, it was Pete with the lesson. It's all coming together. That she can be that relaxed with Pete Campbell, especially yeah. of all people, right? to make that joke with Pete is after what he's put her through, forget emotionally, professionally, what he's put her through about, I don't want her on my counter, all of that, to now just be be so confident and again, feeling herself. I had to ignore my pregnancy and give up my baby to get here. So 
but it's it's earned. It's every bit, and that's that's what this show can do. It it you earn every bit of some of that stuff, and and that wow, was so much fun. Okay, go ahead, go ahead with your lesser quote. Uh huh. There was a lot of quotes in this. I really did love the Rogers. I can't remember the Roger line where where he says to Alice Cooper, like, I don't know whose eyes to to look into. I don't have the quote the exactly. Fox. <laughs> and I, you know, I noticed for the first time just just last night, watch. There's two sets of yeah, eyes oh, there's two heads on her shoulder. Yeah, yeah it's a two headed. I thought there was only no, one. It's a pair, it's a pair of foxes. <laughs> it's wrapped pair around of foxes. Her. Oh, Janie Bryant must have had a blast with I, that one. Yeah, I can't just have one fox. <laughs> With a head still on it around my shoulder. I need two foxes. So that is not my quote, but it was just so great. Uh, Betty friggin' Draper, she says, there's a difference between wanting and having. Mm. And we were just talking about Peggy, who's finally starting to have. And mm. Betty, <laughs> I mean, with what Betty did to, to Sarah Beth, that's, that's a very clear Betty wanted or didn't want <laughs> we right. don't know, That's right. but Betty, but Betty wants things and, but she had, she made mm. Sarah Beth have, and it's just, you know, you can apply it to every one of these scenes. I mean, you, you can apply it to Joan who, who look at the difference between what she wants and what she has, hmm. you know, look at, just, you just go down the line with, with everybody, you every know, single every person, single person. Yeah. There's a difference between wanting and having. Unless you're Roger. He just he just wants and has and wants and has. Wanting and having is well, the same and, thing. And you know, some people spend their whole lives saying they want. You know, it's it's easier to stay stuck in wanting than to yeah. actually have. Oh yeah, once you get it, you don't know what to do with it. You got to be responsible for it. It's so much easier to be the victim of what you don't have and what you just want, right? You could say the entire show is about that. <laughs> I know, really, it leapt out at me as right? like a, as a real big time banner. Yeah. There's a difference between wanting and having. All right. Dan. I want this episode to end. So let's have it that way. We are approaching the season finale. This is it. Next time we come back with Meditations in an Emergency. Bada bing. The not penultimate episode. The ultimate episode. The ultimate episode, if you will. All right. Great stuff there. Great stuff here. A lot to go through. Guys, process it. Let us know what you think. Questions at theycoinedpod.com. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Give it a shot. Thank you so much always for uh, for hanging with us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Hey, Coiners. We're so glad you're enjoying the show. Please give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and share us on social media. If you'd like to support us, we are at patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. Our members get extras and outtakes. We love hearing from you. And yet, we've been giving you the wrong email address. Reach us at questions at theycoinditpod.com. Hang with us on Twitter and Instagram, TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got so much more Mad Men to get to and more special guests. We're looking forward to all of it with you. See you next episode.